0: Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org.
1: All right. I think we will get started here. Um, my name is Tammy Weber. I'm a reporter with the Associated Press. I'm based in Chicago, and we are here to talk about the EPA, the the challenges that it's facing. The shifting responsibilities and how it will function in the future. Um, And hoping to give everybody as much time for questions as possible. I'll ask some of the first questions, but um, really want to get as quickly as possible to uh, to your questions because I'm sure that you'll have a lot. Um, I know you guys all know the rules about uh, the speaker, the, the questioners being SEJ members and working journalists Um, first and if there's time others can ask questions Um, if you can state your name and your affiliation and then I also have been asked to repeat the questions um, even though this is a small room because it's being recorded Um, and uh, obviously you know make sure you're asking a question and rather than just um, making an observation and With that, I will get started with introductions. Ruth Greenspan-Bell is a public policy fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. She formerly worked for the EPA's Office of General Counsel and is a founding member of the Environmental Protection Network, which is former EPA employees. Yes. Right. Okay. Of which you
2: see some representation here. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, (laughs) Kerrigan Clow retired from the EPA in 2008 after 37 years, is that correct? Um, And he started as an intern? Yep. First intern (laughs) at EPA. Right? Right. And your last five years were as Deputy Regional Administrator. Is that correct? At Region 8? Okay. David Ullman. He's the Director of the Environmental Law and Policy Program at the University of Michigan and served 17 years at the U.S. Department of Justice as um, the top environmental crimes prosecutor for the last Seven years of them, correct. Okay. Um, and Judith Eng the former <laughs> region two administrator um, in the Obama administration, visiting professor at Bennington College and the founder of Beyond Plastics. So, okay. Well, I will just, let me scroll down here for a sec. Pick it up and i was gonna start with you. Um, Curry, oh. if, uh, if I can, because you're the, the person who probably has seen the most changes over the years at the at the EPA. I'm wondering if you can sort of describe some of the changes over time, um, changes in maybe the demands on the agency, how priorities evolved, and then, you know, whether the staffing and the funding have adequately reflected the work that the agency has been tasked to carry out over the years. and. You know, your, maybe your view of what the EPA um, should look like in the, the future. It's turning 50 next year, so. Good morning.
3: <laughs> Can you hear me all the way to the back? All right, great. Uh, yeah, I started uh, a few months after the agency was first formed by President Nixon. Uh, Bill Ruckelshaus came in to uh, be the administrator. I think he was only 39. Uh, Which uh, and I was very fortunate to be in the first management intern uh, class at EPA And I remember my first opportunity to tag along with the public affairs director I have a great affinity for you folks having had that been my first assignment and uh, Tom Hart had me go to a staff meeting with Bill Ruckelshaus And Bill Ruckelshaus was talking to the folks in the room, his senior folks, about what should our priorities be. And there was a great argument back and forth. Well, we should start slow and build our credentials. And others were, let's go full blast. Well, you all know the the story. Uh, Ruckelshaus decided to go full blast. And that's been the story of EPA most of the time ever since. I've been uh, really uh, uh, proud of the, of the agency and my part in it because uh, the agency, other than a couple of uh, times, uh, never shied away from a real problem and would take risk and make mistakes and then fix them and then keep going. And I think that's been the history of the, of the place uh, up until, well, uh, the first two years of the Reagan administration, Um, uh, was was difficult, Um, and I can talk more about that later if you want to, but I I, I think that the the thing that's the most heralded part of the HC is the commitment of the employees. Uh, It's not a place where people go to work for a paycheck. Uh, It's a place they go to work because they're truly committed, they really want to do the right thing, and at the start, most of us were kids, Uh, and by the Reagan administration, we were fairly along, but we were, Um, not too um, far along that we could quit Uh, what I see the danger now and I'll stop with this is that the folks uh, in the agency with lots of experience uh, lots of of, uh, understanding of what the job is as a public uh, uh, servant uh, are either at or past their prime retirement point and so a lot of them unfortunately decided well I guess it's time to go now. So I'll talk a little bit more later about putting the place back together if we get a chance.
1: Thank you. Um, this one is for David, and the question is, basically, can you describe how the current regulatory climate compares um, now to past administrations, or um, and then what impacts have you seen from some of the rollbacks and other changes at the EPA? and I know this is multi-part and big, but what, what do you foresee as some of the, the big legal and regulatory challenges in the future, not just now?
4: OK, well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Tammy. And thank you for inviting me to be on this panel. And it's uh, a delight to be here. Um, I share Carrie's fond feelings for environmental journalists. So I'm particularly glad to, to be here. Um, I guess I'd say three things quickly and I'll elaborate briefly and then we'll have a chance to talk more. Uh, the first thing I want to say is I think, I think we've, we've been here before. Uh, this, is not the, this is not the first time we've been in a, in a phase of, of regulatory backlash and rollbacks at, at EPA. i um, say a bit more about that in just a second. Uh, second thing, uh, the second theme I want to introduce is this is bad. Um, (laughs) I think even though we've been here before, we're we're probably at a worse point um, than in the past, and I'll I'll talk about that a little bit more in just a second. Uh, And then the third is, uh, you know, in in terms of the the future, it's really all about 2020. The 2020 election is the most important election of our lifetimes for a whole host of reasons, but not the least. Um, environmental protection uh, and the future of EPA. I don't. I don't think there's any doubting that. So, um, just briefly on each of these uh, uh, main themes. Uh, when I say we've been here before, Kerry, uh, mentioned the Reagan administration. I mean, it's easy to forget. I was in college, uh, but you know, the Reagan administration was a disaster, at least initially, from an environmental protection standpoint. Uh, you know, and. Uh, Ann Gorsuch was the first Gorsuch we met, uh, and, 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 and she was a nightmare. Uh, Rita Lavelle uh, went to jail. I mean, you know, the, the leadership of EPA in the early 1980s, um, you know, rivaled the current leadership of EPA in its lack of respect for legal norms and lack of interest in environmental protection. Uh, you know, what saved us in the 1980s is the Democrats' Uh, in Congress and the public uh, made clear that the regulatory rollbacks that the Reagan administration was pursuing were unacceptable. And so instead of retrenchment, what, we, what actually happened in the 80s was Congress uh, uh, passing amendments to the environmental laws that strengthened them. So the 80s were actually a continuation of the success story of the 70s. But make no mistake about it, EPA was a tough place to be, um, as Kerry I think can attest in the 1980s. Uh, you know, fast forward to the first years of this century, uh, after the election of George W. Bush, and and I would submit we suffered through. The worst environmental presidency uh, until now, uh, and it, and and things were very bad. And and the and, and the difference in in 2001 and beyond was that Republicans uh, were in control of the House and in control of the Senate. Uh, and Dick Cheney was vice president and was a very savvy anti-regulatory actor. And you know whether it was the energy task force that convened in secret. I mean, well, actually. People seen the movie, the Cheney movie, right? I mean, you know, those were, (laughs) those were, they were. I mean, uh, this is when I was uh, in in a leadership role in the Environment Division at the Justice Department. I guess I'm. This is kind of cool. I'm I'm the one (laughs) non-EPA panelist here, uh, being from the just having my history uh, serving at the Justice Department. But I worked, of course, closely with EPA, and and I I had been appointed to head the Environmental Crimes Program at the end of the Clinton administration. Uh, and ended up serving six and a half years in the Bush administration, and it was dreadful. I mean, it was a, just a dreadful time from an environmental protection standpoint. We were constantly having to fight battles just to just to save ground, just to not 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 to not not to have too many rollbacks in environmental protections. And and so, you know, I mention all this and dwell on it for a few moments because as as, as dark as the clouds are not outside, but in, in the country today, and as, as dreadful as things are today. And I, I do think at the White House, we've never been in such an awful space as we are. And really, there aren't awful isn't a strong enough word. My wife would remind me. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, EPA has been through really rough times before. And, and so I'm confident, I'm, I'm worried about what Kerry's referenced and the fact that so many people at the agency have left. And retired because they were now they didn't have to put up with this, and and how Judith and I were just talking about this. I mean, how do you ever replace all of that knowledge and experience uh, in a next administration? But but you know, I, I think the agency can rebound. Uh, this isn't the this isn't this isn't something the agency hasn't been through before. So I, I do think that's an important frame. My second point, I said this is bad. Uh, this is really bad. Like, th- this this EPA has not meant an essential environmental uh, or public health regulatory regime that it doesn't want to undo. Um, and the pace is astounding. The degree to which they are pursuing an anti-regulatory agenda uh, uh, goes beyond even the excesses of, of Reagan and Bush. It is, it is really bad. And I think, you know, and Judith can push back on me about this, but, you know, I would say that President Obama, you know, who now looks like Saint Obama um, uh, and who was, uh, you know, I thought an excellent president, you know, didn't really discover the environment, in, in full force until his second term, he was not unlike Bill Clinton. By the way, Democrats, we have this problem. I just doubted myself, but you know, you, you probably knew from my background. Um, you know, we we tend to discover the environment in our in second terms, um, and and I want to talk some more about that because I think that's a that's a problem that that makes us vulnerable to the kind of rollback effort we've seen in this uh, in this administration. But you know, uh, Barack Obama was not an environmental zealot. I mean, it's not like he was even a revolutionary. He he did. He made very important uh, steps forward on climate, in particular uh, on clean water, on clean air. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think had a, a solid progressive record. But he was no Bernie Sanders uh, and no Elizabeth Warren. I mean, he wasn't, and actually none of the 2020 Democratic presidential candidates, they're all further uh, more progressive than President Obama was on the environment. And I mention all this because You know, if I had to describe the regulatory agenda of this administration, it's basically reverse everything Obama did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And reversing everything Obama did, you know, it's not like, uh, I think that's why, you know, Obama was fairly moderate Mm -hmm. on environment. And we can't, this administration can't even honor Mm -hmm. moderate environmental protections. uh, and and you know I, I would I would say you know the good news here is that reversing everything the prior administration did is not um, is not a rational basis for regulation, and it's it's left this administration's environmental rollback efforts vulnerable in the courts, and they've been losing right and left in the courts. Um, but you know whether it's the Clean Power Plan, the Waters in the United States rule. Uh, the California waiver. I mean, those are just the three biggest, the three that come quickest to mind. Um, The assault on the Obama record is appalling, uh, and it should give Americans across the country, across partisan lines, grave cause for concern because it's depriving all of us uh, of, of the potential for a healthy environment and depriving us all of essential public health protection. So this is quite bad. Uh, so my final point, I said it's all about 2020. Um, I, I don't think I can emphasize this strongly enough, and I, I know that you know. I, at the, I, I actually don't feel like I'm making a political statement, although you can say that I am. Uh, uh, but but you know, in every possible sense of the word, uh, ending this uh, dreadful administration in the next 15 months is essential. I think to the health of our democracy and and. And freedom in the world Um, but never mind all that today Uh, it's essential it's essential for environmental protection uh, in the United States and around the world Um, you know the good news about this administration is that in the first two years they got a failing grade for basic administrative law which is which is not my specialty I mean I was an environmental crimes prosecutor you know we were we were trying to uh, we, we were going after corporations that were flating environmental protections. We were trying to put corporate executives in jail. We weren't doing rulemakings. Um, uh, but you know, I know a thing or two about administrative law. I do teach environmental law, and these guys have done. I mean, my my, my students, my my second year students, would do better than th- this EPA did the first two years. So they've lost in court nearly every time. Mm-hmm. So everything they tried to do under Scott Pruitt, you can basically forget about. Uh, They accomplished nothing under Scott Pruitt, thank God. Um, Where is Scott Pruitt these days? I don't don't know where Scott Pruitt is these days.
2: I think he's lobbying for energy interests in Washington from Oklahoma, I believe. What what a
4: surprise. Um, uh, uh, What what happens now, um, you know, uh, they're doing better now. Andrew Wheeler is, is an equally dark lord. Uh, but he's a more competent dark lord. And so the the Administrative Procedures Act, they're at least getting passing C grades, C-plus grades on the Administrative Procedures Act. But the good news, and I, I referenced this a couple of minutes ago, what you do in Please God, the last two years of a presidency, can easily, it can't, can't come online. It can't, you can't finish litigating. So that's vulnerable to the next presidency. That's, that's, the, that's a lesson of Barack Obama. He did a lot of great stuff in 2015 and 2016, all of it subject to being reversed by this terrible administration. So Andrew Wheeler's maybe doing a better job in the Administrative Procedures Act, by the way, doing just as bad a job, if not worse, on all things environmental protection and public health. But I think what he's doing could be reversed in 2021. Um, Give these people four more years and forget about it i mean environmental rollbacks like we've never seen um, and and you know what i want to sort of end with um, uh, is uh, the fact that we don't have time to waste you know uh, uh, tammy wanted me to speak to what the biggest issues are i mean the, you know the biggest issues are climate climate and climate <laughs> Um, But, you know, but non-point source pollution is a huge unaddressed problem in our country. We've got a whole host of 21st century challenges uh, from an environmental and public health standpoint that we are not meeting. Um, uh, You know, I would say that the opportunity costs of the last four years are enormous. Um, Even if we get out of this with just one term of the Trump administration and we uh, can start the process of rebuilding EPA in 2021 and start tackling some of the problems. Uh, that we face from an environmental protection standpoint, we're well behind where we should be. So this has been a disastrous two and a half years. Uh, it will have been a disastrous administration, even if it ends after one term. But, it, but if it goes two terms, uh, you know, our, our ability to meet uh, the, uh, all the goals that the IPCC and the rest of the world have set out from a climate standpoint, uh, you, you can throw them out the window. Uh, and our ability to have just the basic environmental and public health protections that EPA has delivered on for fifty years uh, goes out the window. So uh, really important that that change come in 2020.
1: Thank you. Um, just to um, to be balanced, obviously this the issue of the EPA and the future of the EPA goes beyond what's happening in the Trump administration, yeah. um, and yeah, I wanted to ask Judith, you know, what do you think some of the emerging issues are that the EPA is going to have to tackle, and is it prepared? You know, if not, you, you know, what, what's it going to take to get there? But also, are there sort of areas of unfinished business that maybe the EPA has put aside because of some of the, the new mandates that it has?
5: Hi, everyone. So um, even during the best of times, EPA has always been underfunded and always has gotten beaten up um, by the industries that the law directs EPA to regulate. Um, Obviously, the big issue that has been abandoned is reducing greenhouse gas emissions and dealing with climate change. And I I was regional administrator in EPA Region 2, so I worked a lot on the Sandy response, Hurricane Sandy, and we know warmer water temperatures result in more intense hurricanes, Uh, climate change linked to a range of environmental issues I don't need to recite to you. What people may not realize is the role that mostly the regional offices play in responding to wildfires Uh, to hurricanes, to droughts, to uh, floods. Um, After I left EPA, I went down at the request of the governor of the U.S. Virgin Islands to try to deal with the environmental impacts of the hurricanes there. So it's important to drive down uh, greenhouse gas emissions, not only from the power sector, but also transportation, manufacturing, uh, plastics. Come to my workshop tomorrow. but also just kind of the day-to-day operational work, mostly done in the regional offices. When I left EPA at the end of the Obama administration, um, the entirety of the regional staff matched the numbers in Washington, D.C. staff. And the Washington, D.C. staff were very important in developing regulations, et cetera. The regional offices is where the real fun takes place. You can be more entrepreneurial. (laughs) A mayor calls you and says there's a local problem. You can go fix it. And I think um, a real problem is the relationship that EPA currently has with states. People should realize that with most federal environmental laws, Uh, States are given the delegation to do the the day-to-day implementation. So there's always kind of this diplomatic dance that goes on. EPA is kind of the parent looking over the shoulder to make sure that laws are being enforced. Not so much these days. I'd be so curious to see enforcement cases initiated by the Trump administration. We know that the overall numbers are down by a half. Um, but what are the cases that have either been abandoned, slow-walked, or not, um, not started? But this state-EPA relationship is very important, and I think one of the worst examples of how not to do it is how um, the Trump EPA is relating to the state of California, which I can only describe as a bizarre grudge match. Uh, The state of California wants to improve air quality. Uh, Many states have adopted the California car standards, and I use this as an illustration because this is not political posturing. This is how many asthma attacks people have if air quality is degraded. This is, do we have PFOA in drinking water and, and not address it? Um, How is Newark, New Jersey, going to deal with the lead lead pipe crisis? The decline of the EPA, the gutting of the EPA, has profound public health and ecological impacts. The way this EPA is relating to California is very, very troubling. Um, I think the two figures in our contemporary public life who have figured out how to deal with the Trump administration most effectively when they violate the law. One is the person who we don't know their identity, but who blew the whistle on the Ukrainian <laughs> um, relationship. Mm-hmm. And the second person is Mary Nichols, who is the head of the <laughs> California Air Resources Board, CARB. She negotiated an agreement with car companies who, you know, don't turn on a dime. They cu- they do a couple years of planning. She went directly with them, and she had the audacity of wanting to improve air quality, and she is met with hostility and barriers by an agency that has a statutory responsibility to enforce the Clean Air Act. We are beyond uncharted territory. This is the most, um, troubling assault on public health that we've ever seen in the, in the agency. Um, I, so I think going forward, you know, what are, what are the challenges? Of course it's climate change, of course it's the issue that I'm mostly spending my time on which is reducing plastic pollution. Nine million metric tons of plastics enter the ocean every year within the next decade if we don't change the way we pack, package products For every three pounds of fish in the ocean, there will be one pound of plastic. What is the EPA doing about that today? Nothing. And yet, almost weekly, you see reports about problems with plastic pollution. So um, I think the relationships with the state is going to have to be reset. Um, Enforcement is going to have to come back as a tool. And another example. I'm from upstate New York. I teach in southern Vermont. I love the Adirondacks. Um, New York State uh, Department of Environmental Conservation just announced a few days ago that a tiny lake in the Adirondack High Peaks Wilderness now has brook trout for the first time in 32 years. They didn't have brook trout in this lake because of acid rain. Acid rain is down 70% in this country, Um, and that is because of enforcement of the Federal Clean Air Act, either by um, federal EPA or by the states or by the states suing uh, downwind communities. Final point I want to make is I think what has saved a lot of damage to health is using litigation, using the courts, Uh, As was mentioned, uh, during the Pruitt administration, they were very sloppy. They lost a lot of cases. Um, Really interesting, um, the vast majority of the environmental rollbacks have not succeeded when challenged in courts. And it's not just the lawsuits by Earth Justice and Natural Resources Defense Council, Center for Biological Diversity, has filed 164 cases. It's also the State Attorneys General. And a story that I'd like reporters to think about is um, State Attorneys General do a lot of work. I worked, I'm not a lawyer, I worked in the New York AG's office for eight years. So you've got everything coming at you and you have state environmental law to to enforce. The State Attorneys General, a certain subset of them, are regularly (laughs) suing to block the rollbacks, and they are regularly winning. So a story for you is have your, if you're from one of the states where state AGs are actively opposing uh, gutting environmental regulations, are those attorneys general getting increases in their budgets? Are they hiring more lawyers and more scientists and funding for expert witnesses? I know um, one year with Jerry Brown, he did up the California AG litigation budget by maybe about 20 lawyers. That has not happened in New York. And I have a, a suspicion that uh, that's not happening in other AG offices. And the final point I want to make is while the courts, is uh, they're playing a key role in making sure some of the public health protections are not gutted or or delayed, that's not going to be a great move if there is a second Trump administration. President Trump has appointed 146 new federal judges. These are lifetime appointments. A lot of these judges are very young. Trump has appointed the second most federal judges uh... of of any other during the three-year period of their term so uh... when these cases go before federal judges i don't think the outcome is going to be what we saw uh... this year last year and so if there is a second trump administration or a second administration that is not more pro-environment I don't think the courts are going to be there as the safety net. So that means more air pollution in our lungs, uh, more lead in our drinking water, fewer Superfund sites and brownfield sites cleaned up, more wetlands bulldozed over, and inadequate responses to
1: a warming climate. So i just wanted to follow up on that um real quick because you talked about the gutting of the agency and i'm assuming that you're talking about a lot of the rollbacks because the the actual budget and the numbers are fairly yeah, they're not spending thin. okay the mm-hmm.
5: so tammy raises a really good point um the earl and ruth can speak to this the the the, the pr- executive proposed budget is always to roll back the the budget by like mm-hmm. 33 percent almost or more and Congress always restores it but a lot a lot of the uh, slots are not being filled I mean I imagine being appropriated the money and not spending it um, but more than that and when my former colleagues asked me when when I left EPA should they stay and fight mm-hmm. I said yes, yes. yes. Uh, but what they're telling me is, they have, as scientists, as engineers, as lawyers, they have virtually no input into mm-hmm. decisions. Decisions are made like, I guess, in a secret room in, in Washington um, where expertise is not sought. And so a lot of the, ex- the experts who are still at the agency um, are not being consulted with on important policy decisions.
1: Thank you, and um, I will ask Ruth this uh, question more about the future. Re- regardless, uh, you know, well beyond Trump, you know, the the agency in 50 years may look very different. Um, maybe it has to have other priorities. Maybe it has to function in a different way. Um, can you describe some of the you know the ongoing discussions about the future of the EPA that sure. you've been involved in, and you know what are some of the steps that are you know, how how is mm-hmm. it gonna have to look in, you know, the the coming decades.
2: Sure, and I have somebody right next to me who's been intimately involved with an exercise yeah. on that, so we'll, be, we'll, we'll both be both. doing this. Yeah, be great. Um first of all I, I really appreciate I want to thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm it's reassuring in the extreme in these anxious times to see all of you out here, you know, closely following these issues and reporting on them. So thank you very much because that's what makes the difference out there in terms of people's understanding because we've gone from a period I think, and this is one of our challenges, where you know pollution, I mean I was raised in LA, you could see the air when I was growing up, You know, there were rivers on fire. Um, we, we solved all that and the current threats, the current challenges are not as, quite as tangible, you can't quite put your fingers on them in the same way you used to be able to, and I think the public hasn't understood, uh, and nobody's really gone to any great lengths to explain to them, you know, that the next set of challenge, you don't see particulate, but it ends up in your lungs, and it has a big role to play in asthma (laughs) with children and lifespan and a lot of other things. So we're on that generation, and climate, you know, we're seeing the impacts of climate, but you don't literally see climate so you know your reporting is essential to making people understand what's at stake and 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 what the true challenges are and what it means for them so i want to thank you very much and i just wanted to pick up on one point sorry to do this to you tammy that, that judith made about california um in the latter part of my epa career and then after i left i worked on international issues, and I worked a lot in the former Soviet bloc, and, um, and I lived in Poland for a while. And what I learned was that very often, and Putin does this routinely now, the leaders in those countries dur- and during those bad times, there were environmental laws on the, on the books, okay? They weren't uniformly applied. They weren't applied in an even-handed manner. They were often weaponized to punish people who the leadership didn't like, and and Putin's doing that right now. So you know everybody's polluting, but if you're an oligarch who uh, he's fallen out of favor with, uh, you know you you use the environmental laws to to punish that guy. Um, what's going on in California <laughs> with the weaponizing of the Clean Water Act is so much on the Soviet model that I can't even begin, I mean, my jaw dropped when I heard about this. And I hope people are covering that because it's a really important distortion and it's such a threat to our democracy and the basic idea that laws are evenly applied and they're not weaponized and so i i just wanted i, I didn't okay, want that okay yeah to just pass. we just have to okay, kind now, of move okay. so
1: there's enough time okay, for okay let me get to the, the future
2: okay I, I think there's the immediate future and the medium future and the long term future in the immediate future if there's if there's a change of administration there has to be serious attention to uh, some of the things people have been alluding to here which are the career staff generally a new administration comes in and their focus and it's a really hard thing to do is to find uh political appointees to run the regions to run to you know to cut to take those high level positions uh that judith and other people have have held Um, the difference now is that the career staff is demoralized we all want them to stay there but they have been in the position that, that judith has articulated where they have been trying to do what their job is, which is to try to keep the leadership and the agency out of trouble. That's their core job. And, um, and they are not consulted. Um, so there, when I remember very well when Ruckelshaus came back the second term, um, he spent the first few weeks literally greeting everybody in the agency. He and his wife shook hands with and talked to every person in the agency and in the regions, I believe, because he was trying to send the signal that he respected their jobs, he respected their, their expertise, and he wanted them there fully functioning as the agency went ahead and tried to do its real job. And that's what's going to be necessary in this next go-round. We need a leader like that who, who does that, because those folks are literally the backbone of getting things done, you can have grand policy. You can have people who are for doing things about climate change, but the implementation of it means constructing uh, secure and robust rulemaking records. It means uh, putting together rulemakings that, um, that can survive in court. There's, it's a very tough business, and it takes all hands and incredible uh, institutional memory and expertise to make that happen, and the people who make that happen are the are the career people who've been there forever. We want them to stay there, so that's the immediate issue, which is making sure um, that the agency literally can function going forward, <laughs> and from the from the first day of any change that might take place, um, whether it's uh, you know anyway, the the medium term is. Um, Trying to think about these 21st century challenges that I alluded to earlier, which are, you know, uh, much more subtle, much more complex in some ways than, than, uh, than not having rivers on fire. Um, they're about, um, you know, parts per million, parts per trillion. They're about piecing out, you know, very complex issues um, and I think the agency, which is under a prohibition basically from self-advertising, still has to basically do a better job of explaining to people, you know, what it's doing and why it's doing it, and and, and what the benefits are to people. Um, and the long term is people something we can all talk about. That the uh, the um, alumni association has done a really interesting exercise, um, the EPA alumni association. Uh, Actually, in, with help from Bill Riley, who's been very, very engaged in that, and some folks from American University, uh, have really been trying to think about how EPA uh, addresses the 21st century and functions in the 21st century. You know, we maybe have kind of old-fashioned methods collecting data. Now we know that there's, we're in a data universe with algorithms and lots of information that can lead us to polluters or help us make better decisions. Um, there's I, 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 I can't repeat everything that's in that report, but you should probably take a look at it. It's online somewhere, I think, at the Alumni Association's website and maybe American University in the aftermath of a two-day conference they did. So I'm gonna leave it at that, but, but you have to think about it in kind of waves. There's like, what happens if we're lucky enough to get to, back to normal? there's the medium issue and then there's a long-term issue of how EPA functions going forward in in, in very changed circumstances from those that were around in 50 years ago when mm-hmm. when the whole thing started yeah did
1: uh, did you have something that you wanted to add on that about that Carrie or oh. um, because we wanted to move on to questions sure. from the audience um, Sure. if we can we do that first and then we can come back yes to, please okay um so if anybody wants to ask a question just please state your name um your affiliation and i'll repeat the question for the sorry.
2: Hi, i'm cheryl Hogan with chemical and engineering news in washington dc uh, and david i want to take issue of one thing that pruitt did that um i think has stuck and it's about changing the composition can, uh, can you ask good uh, okay. we just
1: have to make sure that we're so asking questions science okay i'm sorry yeah. okay, okay okay sorry yeah,
2: wanna, yeah i'm gonna get to this and about um i think judith you touched on that as well too is not listening to scientists and even the, the new board that they have um they don't they don't even want them to review the pm oh we don't have time we've got to get this rule out yeah can you talk a little bit about those sorts of processes of cutting scientists
1: out and say we just got to push this through because because we're missing clean air act
5: deadlines
4: Okay, so the, uh, the question, I think I'm supposed to repeat it, is, is in, uh, one of the things Scott Pruitt did achieve was gutting the scientific advisory boards at EPA and, and creating this milieu where science is not part of rulemaking. Um, you, you're right. I mean, that, that happened, uh, and that's devastating. I mean, you know, uh, love it or hate it. I think EPA, over the first 48 years of its history, or 46 years of its history, developed a strong track record of following science, um, exercising good, practicing good science, um, and taking science into account in making its decision. Even when science actually frustrated policymakers and administrations because it said some bad things that we didn't want to hear, so. The idea that we're going to do science-based regulation, that we're going to care about public health, that we're going to consider ecological impacts, and that all of that is going to matter in how we do rulemaking is not a transient notion. Uh, it is one that this administration's abandoned. Um, and and I, and I wasn't suggesting that Scott Pruitt, despite his uh, challenges his first two years, didn't have a negative impact. W- what I was suggesting, uh, and I think others, others on the panel can speak to this, but just from a, from a legal standpoint, since I'm the, since I'm the uh, uh, environmental lawyer on the panel. Oh, excuse the, me. The, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> the, the, I'm the former Justice Department person on the panel. Um, the, uh, the, the long-term effect of, this, of the Pruitt rollback efforts is negligible because of exactly what you're talking about. They, they didn't practice good science. Um, well, actually, it's negligible because they didn't follow the Administrative Procedures Act. So most of what they did wasn't done properly and was reversed. Going forward, I mean, and this is the more interesting part, perhaps. I mean, Wheeler's doing a better job in terms of following the Administrative Procedures Act. He's not an A student, just to be clear. But, you know, there are at least paying lip service to the Administrative Procedures Act. But they're doing no better job following the science. And I think, and uh, others can speak to this, but I, I think if, if the agency continues to put out rules that pay no attention to what science teaches us, um, uh, you know, some of those might slip past this very conservative judiciary that the Trump administration is, has, has installed. Uh, but, you know, there's still a lot of Obama judges out there and a lot of Bush judges. And both Bush Both sets of Bush judges are better than the Trump judges. Uh, And and you fail to follow science, you fail to have a rational basis for administrative action. There does have to be a rational basis for regulatory action. Um, And if you disregard science, which this administration has done left and right, you make it possible for – the states, but also environmental groups, citizens groups, to challenge whatever you're doing as an abuse of discretion because it disregards science. And, and, and then we're right back where we started with uh, the rollbacks not happening. But again, just to be crystal clear here, and then I'll stop, um, you know, I think we're actually faring pretty well on rollbacks because they, don't, they didn't follow the Administrative Procedures Act initially, and they're, they've never followed the science. Um, what's what's killing us, and I mean it literally, uh, or will kill us, is the, the the opportunity cost of not taking action on urgent environmental and public health problems, not the least of which climate.
1: Right, Tom.
0: Will um, you kind of segued. Can,
1: can you?
4: In, you oh, I'm sorry, Tom, Tom okay. Henry at the Toledo
0: Blade, and um, you kind of segued into something I was going to ask, and and Judith might want to weigh in on this, too, because it involves, you know, state relationship with EPA, uh, but in a different way, in Ohio, the, the Republican governors have resisted imposing <coughs> what's known as a TMDL, total maximum daily load program for Western Lake Erie's LG, And the U.S. EPA Region 5 has gone along with that, much to the dismay of groups like the Environmental Law and Policy Center, um, which is suing them in federal court, and Lucas County commissioners and the city of Toledo have joined in. So I'm wondering, in the big picture, this appears to be the future of Lake Erie's cleanup strategy. Is there, Are there going to be mandatory controls on agriculture and runoff, or is the state and the US EPA going to be allowed to continue with voluntary incentives that even the past administration admitted mm-hmm. just aren't working? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm wondering: should this judge rule in favor of the city, the county, and the others suing them? Uh, what happens then? Is there a scenario where they, they, uh, the US EPA could be so determined to ignore a, a a judge's order to set up a TMDL?
4: So the, I want to let others jump in on this, but let me just tee up the legal question and the Midwest issue. Um, but I think it's a national issue, and I think others will have opinions about this. So the question, as I understand it, is that is basically what are we going to do about non-point source pollution, pollution from agricultural activities, uh, but also pollution from runoff from, from cities and towns across America? Um, and the technical part of the question is why aren't we using? A provision under the Clean Air Act called, called the Total Maximum Daily Load provision, Clean which Water. is Water, uh, Water, Act. Water Act, sorry, which is the one way the Clean Water Act does indirectly through the back door address non-point source pollution. Um, I, I just say that if, if we get past when we get past climate, which is not a, you know, which is not a small hurdle to get past, but uh, if you if you're wanting to write stories about major environmental challenges beyond climate, uh, non-point source pollution. And and the failure of the 1970s and 1980s Clean Water Act legislation to address um, the problem of agricultural runoff and to address the problem of runoff from cities and towns across America is one of the biggest 21st century environmental challenges we face. And, and, you know, I'm from the Great Lakes region now, but, you know, the Great Lakes have an astounding, I think it's like 20 percent of the world's fresh water supply. And we're wiping it out because we won't regulate farms. We won't regulate farms because we think that the gentleman farmer uh, uh, and the gentlewoman farmer are, are uh, uh, you know, are, are the farmers in America who are, um, are going to be overwhelmed by regulation and they're small business people and how can they handle it? Uh, you know, newsflash, uh, agribusiness is over 90 percent of farming in America today. You know, we don't have the gentle, gentleman or gentlewoman farmer anymore, uh, and agribusiness uh, can more than handle the fact of regulation. And if we don't do something in this space, we're not only going to leave uh, Lake Erie vulnerable, but we, you know, the Gulf of Mexico is vulnerable, the Chesapeake Bay is vulnerable, uh, clean water throughout the United States is vulnerable from the, from the failure of Congress uh, and the failure of uh, multiple presidents now to address this problem. Huge story, well worth covering, um, others may want to weigh into.
5: I I just, in the the spirit of being a little bit more um, critical in a bipartisan way, because we've been highly critical of the Trump administration, I think Democratic and Republican administrations both have absolutely failed Mm -hmm. in terms of regulating agriculture pollution and nonpoint in general. Uh, And a lot of that has to do with the political strength of the Farm Bureau. Uh, they're kind of like the NRA for EPA. <laughs> um, they, if there's even a hint of uh, stronger environmental regulation or enforcement, uh, they know the drill. They call their members of Congress, they call appropriators, they then call the political leadership of the agency, and then suddenly enforcement cases are dropped, or. Um, strong regulations are weakened, and this has happened in both Democratic and Republican administrations. And we now see the effect of that. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you see any scenario where a federal judge's court order would be resisted? I mean, is this, is this something that would just be subject to appeal for years?
4: Well, I mean, the, the you know the the legal process is is painfully slow. Yeah. Uh, but you know, if a federal judge's order, uh, if a federal judge orders the imposition of a TMDL, this this actually happened. I mean, it's happened across the country. It's how we have uh, at least some regulation the of nonpoint source. By the
0: way, is said on the record in open court several times that it's clear from the record the Ohio EPA hasn't done enough.
4: Yeah. No. I mean, he'll probably or, or the judge will probably order a TMDL. Uh, and there's a good chance it gets upheld um, uh, when it goes to the court of appeals. I mean, that it does. That's a two or three-year process. But I, I don't see, you know, as lawless as the White House is, I, I don't see EP, the Justice Department and EPA resisting a federal judge's order. Uh, they will, they will follow the law. Uh, it's just going to take a while to get there.
1: Okay. We need to move on to um, in, way in the back there.
5: I was hoping you would track it. Okay. I don't, yeah, the, the question is, do I have hard data that state attorneys general's offices are not having increase in staff uh, lines and, and funding to challenge the Trump environmental rollbacks? I don't have data on this. Um, I, I live in New York and I, my understanding from talking to folks in New York, uh, you know, Governor Cuomo puts out really good environmental press releases saying he's challenging uh, federal rollbacks, but I don't think there's been an increase in the Environmental Protection Bureau in the New York AG. Um, but it, it needs – I don't think it would be hard to figure out if you were, like, a really good reporter, as I'm sure you are. But let's just hope they don't make you FOIA it because then, you know, you're probably delayed. I haven't seen a breakdown like that. I'm just um, laying that out as a possible story.
2: Could I offer, could I offer an idea? Um, I, actually, I think some states have been hiring. I think Washington State did some hiring. But you might just check with Dave Hayes at NYU Law School because he's um, got a, a, a project going there where he's working with the state AGs. He's independent the of the... Bloomberg um, funded. Pardon me?
4: <laughs> funded by Michael Bloomberg. Oh,
2: I bet that's right. <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm guessing that Dave either knows the answer or can get you to the answer.
5: Yeah, the question is, what's going on with Superfund cleanups in this administration? So historically, Superfund has been super slow. And that's because the polluters challenge the regulators every step of the way. I am a Superfund hawk. I love Superfund, especially the, or- the original intent, which is to re- remove the source of the pollution as opposed to what's called uh, pave and wave or capping. Um, um, Pruitt definitely was pushing to delist sites quicker. And when sites are cleaned up, they should be delisted, because you want them back on the tax rolls, put into productive use. But there have been some concerns about whether um, the delisting is being done only to drive economic development at the site, as opposed to whether the cleanup has been done. And I can tell you from personal experience, I did a lot of work on PFOA in drinking water in Hoosick Falls, New York. And before I left EPA, the state of New York um, petitioned EPA or wrote a letter to EPA Region 2 suggesting that this be a federal Superfund site, which it is. So Hoosick Falls, New York is both a federal and state Superfund site. Since the Trump administration has come in, Um, The federal EPA has been almost missing in action at that site, deferring to the state, not really pushing very hard, not being visible. And that's a high-profile site.
1: The question is, what do do our panelists think about big oil wanting to be regulated on methane?
3: uh, They uh, don't want to have to deal with it if the Trump administration leaves. They'd rather deal with it now. And the the little guys, they want to only plan three months at a time. So that's the bottom line. Can I
5: do a follow-up on that? Sure. Related, I think the real ethane-methane story is um, all of the ethane cracker plants being proposed, Pennsylvania, Ohio, the Gulf Coast states, where um, basically, Ethane, which is currently vented into the atmosphere would be sent by pipeline to a new production facility to make plastics. Now, I will admit I am plastic-centric these days. But um, that is the move. And if these ethylene cracker plants are built, they are major sources of carbon pollution. And the fossil fuel industry sees progress with renewables and driving down demand, and so their big play now is to um, be a, a byproduct of
4: plastics. So the question is what's happening with enforcement and, and how, how bad a drop-off has there been? I actually think this is an interesting question. Um, I, I will say anecdotally that you know I'm, I'm still in touch with my former colleagues at the Justice Department and, it, uh, and their counterparts at EPA. Um, and Susan Bodine, who heads the Office of Enforcement and Compliance Assurance at EPA, is actually highly regarded by the career staff, um, which is uh, unusual in this administration. Um, so it is, uh, uh, it is no doubt true that the numbers are down on the civil side. Those numbers are out. Um, on the criminal side, which I know quite well, uh, I think the numbers are down as well. My students and I do uh, uh, are, are, do, do something, run something called the Environmental Crimes Project that looks at every case that's been investigated by EPA and prosecuted under the Pollution Prevention Law starting in 2005, and we're, we're just now getting into the 2017-2018 data that EPA provided us at the beginning of the year that is the first two years of the Trump administration. But we, we've, we've peaked, uh, and the numbers are down. Um, But I would just caution that on the enforcement side of things, um, uh, every single presidency, starting with George Herbert Walker Bush, continuing in the Clinton administration, continuing with George W. Bush, continuing in Obama, and now with Trump, has been accused of dropping enforcement. Um, It's rarely true. Um, although there is a problem with enforcement at EPA, and the, the problem, this is related to something Judith talked about, the, the problems in staffing levels, and that the staffing levels are atrocious and they keep falling off. So, so what, what the data that I have shows is that we reached a peak on criminal enforcement uh, around 2012, and then starting in the second term of the Obama administration, ironically, when Obama really found the environment and found climate as, an, as a legacy issue for his administration, the numbers started dropping. So the drop on the criminal side did not begin with Donald Trump. It actually began with Barack Obama. But I, but, you know, I, I think you can put, put your, if you want to point a finger, or if you want to attribute responsibility here, it's Congress. I mean, Congress keeps slashing EPA's budget. Uh, and EPA has lost so much ground in real dollars, you know, even when their budget doesn't get cut 33 percent as this administration proposes and only gets cut around the margins, there are actually deeper cuts than that because they're losing pace uh, over, the, over the decades. They've lost so much uh, ground to inflation. So the, the uh, enforcement is down, but enforcement is down most of all. Um, because Congress has failed EPA, in my view. And uh, you know, having said that, when enforcement drops, I mean, it, it's obviously critically uh, problematic from an environmental protection standpoint. The laws are only, as Abraham Lincoln supposedly said, I've had a hard time attributing this, but uh, laws without enforcement, he's, he's quoted as having said, laws without enforcement are only good advice. Um, and that is clearly true in the environmental context. We need strong, credible enforcement. It has to happen at the federal level. A lot of states are good, but it's a it's a checkerboard out there at the state level. And the federal government is asleep at the switch on enforcement. It's a huge problem. But I do think the story is a little more nuanced. Although I sense Judith might disagree with me. Yeah,
5: because my head is going like that. I want I want to respectfully disagree. I mean, who watches Law and Order? That's my release, right? <laughs> so, you know, CNN or Law & Order. Law & Order from me at around 10 o'clock reruns. So the police investigate the crime and the DA enforces. So EPA has to build the case and hand it over to Department of Justice. So on a certain level, the most important appointment Uh, for whoever the next president is, if there's a new president, is not the EPA administrator. I think the most important appointment is who heads the Natural Resources Division at Department of Justice, so that we can get back to actually enforcing laws on the books. Mm -hmm. The last numbers I saw were enforcement at EPA was generally down by about 50%, and I would challenge all of you to find a new initiated enforcement case um, in during this administration. 50% not fifty no. percent from
1: the previous administration.
5: Yes, from the previous on year. Civil enforcement. Civil. Yeah. And, and and I it's down on criminal, but not by fifty percent. Um, but look at, you know, and, and it's hard the, the numbers are hard. I always would look at the numbers every year. Cynthia Giles who preceded Susan uh, in that position put out a really good annual report um, the cases take a long time. I'm wondering, is there one civil in, environmental enforcement case that has been started and initiated by this administration? I will bet you a latte in a refillable cup that <laughs> we can't find one per region.
2: Can I ask a question though? Has um, citizens enforcement actions have they picked up in recent years because, you know everybody knows you know that you can give notice to the agency and if the agency chooses not to act in a civil matter that that an, or, an organization out there can bring the case and they can get uh, attorneys fees for having prosecuted the case so my question is has that picked up in this gap and is it to some extent filling the gap
4: i don't have an empirical answer to that question but but i think it's a great i mean the one of the Great contributions of American environmental yeah, law yeah. is the creation of the citizen suit model and this idea that citizens groups can can uh, serve as private attorneys general and in effect step into the mm-hmm. shoes of the federal or state governments and bring lawsuits against polluters uh, when the government doesn't. Um, I'd, I'd probably take the latte bet mm-hmm. um, because right. because I mean you know because it was such a low bar. So we go that, to the website. Yeah, it's Judith set such such a low bar. You know, a case. A single case in each region initiated. started started since January twentieth, twenty seventeen. There may be one, which is why I would take the bet. Um, but I, I think, I, but I, I think the I
5: said per region. Uh, yeah,
4: I know. <laughs> but I, but I think the I think the um, you know the broader point is uh, referrals are definitely down. Partially offset, no doubt, by citizen suits, but not completely offset by citizen suits. And I'm not suits. arguing
2: that that yeah. th- that's great. I'm just saying that. There are, the groups. Oh, I'm are, sorry. Groups and no, that's okay. Groups and attorneys general are being more aggressive these days for obvious reasons. So it would be really interesting to know what the numbers are on that.
4: Yeah, but I just don't want to lose the, the the broader point I was trying to make, though. I mean, this is a this is a 20-year problem. Um, yeah. You know, e- EPA. Just in my old world, the criminal world, EPA uh, is supposed to under something called the Pollution Prevention Act of 1991. Note the year, 1991. They were supposed to hire up to 200 criminal investigators. Um, they hit that number in the mid-90s, and they've struggled to get anywhere close to it ever since. But let's be clear, 200? Mm-hmm. That's a pitiful number. Mm-hmm. 200 criminal investigators for the entire United States. If you need a little context, the Fish and Wildlife Service does great work, but, but the cases aren't nearly as complex as the EPA cases. has more than 400. The Federal Bureau of Investigation has more than 10,000. So, you know, if if we're serious about environmental protection in the United States, at some point we've got to get serious about funding EPA's Mm -hmm. efforts to enforce those laws. Okay. Um, Wanted to get
1: to some more. Yeah, in the back
2: there.
3: I just wanted to add something on enforcement that we're only talking about the big stuff here. Uh, The the, um, vast majority of enforcement uh, to um, fix problems in the environment happens at the states and the regional offices sending inspectors out to see if the states are doing their job. And that's administrative procedures of uh, enforcement. Uh, All these other big things, yeah, they're nice, but they don't add up to a lot other than some big sources. I'd like to give you a couple of data points uh, that might help you. Look at the Environmental Integrity Project website. Integrity Project website. They just sent a letter to uh, Administrator Wheeler uh, pointing out over 400 uh, major sources that are out of compliance uh, in a group of about 15 states. This is in response to uh, EPA picking on California. Uh, So you can get a lot of data there. Also look at the EPA uh, consent decree tracking system, consent decree tracking system, which will show you because uh, all these things they talked about, except criminal, end up in a consent decree. And then you look and see, OK, is the agency doing anything? There are milestones. What you'll find is they're not. But those are great stories. Because you can find dates when they're supposed to go do something. And you'll find they didn't.
1: Okay. Yeah, in the back there.
3: Yeah, uh, she's asking about uh, what role science is playing now uh, in environmental protection. and brought up a specific uh, uh, example of the PFAS issue. Some call it PFAS, but we, you all know what it is. Uh, a bunch of chemicals that um, uh, that causes all kinds of different problems at very low levels. <clears throat> I have a personal interest because where I come from in Michigan, we have a, a summer cottage on a lake that's contaminated, and, and also the groundwater in, in the, the surrounding area is, and so I've got family members who are dealing with, there's PFAS in in their drinking water, and what do they do about it. Uh, uh, EPA had promised a while back to move forward with a, uh, with a, um, uh, a um, uh, drinking water standard for it. Uh, there's only health advisories at the, at the moment. Every state is having to deal with it on their own. And that's the role for the federal government to set standards for such things using the science setting the standards, and then the states can then implement them. Uh, uh, My home state and others are merely going along along as they need to, since EPA is failing to do its job on setting the standard based on science for a federal standard that then would give the states a lot more credibility when they go to do either cleanups or enforcement actions.
1: Did that answer your question? Because you were talking about the litigation there are some circumstances where you see people testify before house committee meetings and they'll say the industry reps will say there's not enough science to back (laughs) up an enforcement chemicals you know so how do you
5: respond to that you jump out of your seat, for one thing. Well, I I think the PFAS chemicals are the new PCBs. And if you look just at PFOA, there is plenty of science. There's something called the C8 study that DuPont voluntarily funded along with um, uh, people who were suing them for health impacts. And so that was a a 10-year process looking at peer-reviewed independent science.
3: Ohio Valley, 34,000 people.
5: I think it was actually more. It was the Ohio Valley. um, The attorney is Robert Balot. I think there's a movie coming out about him soon. But separate from the movie, just look at the C8 study. If you have elevated levels of PFOA in drinking water, you are much more likely to have thyroid disease, kidney cancer, uh, pregnancy-induced hypertension, uh, testicular cancer and three other diseases that I used to be able to rattle off when I was working in Hoosick Falls. Um, The science is solid. And this is what the cigarette industry has has said for years. And and I'm watching with great interest everything going on with e-cigarettes and and vaping. you know, there, there are some interesting parallels with what the chemical industry <clears throat> says and does in terms of known and unknown health risks. I'm always for more science. But at some point, when you've got a lot of science and you don't act, hmm. yeah. um, mm-hmm. that is often, uh, you know, we pay the price with our bodies. Uh,
1: are there other questions?
0: Okay. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. I just have one. Hi. My name is Robert Wellington, uh, or Justice, and I wanted to hear your views about coal ash protections. I don't think that was something that was discussed, especially how the EPA back some regulations and affecting areas like Puerto Rico, Mm -hmm. an area that is very prone to hurricanes that carry these uh, toxic
4: uh, dust. I
2: mean, that was a big problem in North Carolina, too, when the hurricane hit, yeah.
5: I'm glad you mentioned Puerto Rico. Um, The coal ash issue is huge there. Everyone should take a look at it. AES, Puerto Rico, spread coal ash all over the island. Um, And wherever you have a lot of open spreading of coal ash and bad weather, it's going to be a problem. And on Ruth's point, and I know everyone's leaving. I just want to say two really fast things. On Ruth's point, citizen suits are really important but in low-income communities, yeah. people can't find lawyers. And so you have disproportionate impact unless Earth Justice or gets involved.
2: Well, there's actually and a project right now in uh, uh, clinical uh, programs in uh, in, in uh, law schools trying to pick up the slack on that. Right.
5: I know. But yeah. the law students are it's n- a big no problem. replacement. And my final point is I brought my, I have a whole bunch of reusable bags. This is <laughs> an EPA bag. You'll see it's fading, but it is Not disappeared. So
1: there is hope.
4: That's excellent.
1: I just wanted to ask sort of a last question. We have about four more minutes, and that was I I know, Carrie, you've been working on this too. But how do you prepare for the EPA of the future? What what's it going to look like? Who's part of that conversation Mm. right now?
3: uh, Yeah. Uh, Ruth mentioned the three stages Uh, what I'm most concerned around uh, about right now is getting ready for Hopefully uh, fixing the place after 2020 and uh, we have a lot of models We've got a lot of people who have real experience Uh, the Environmental Protection Network Which most of these folks are members of there's about 350 of us? Uh, Aged or not quite so aged but uh, people who are ready and willing to uh, Pitch in even come back for a year if that's what's necessary the the uh, and that's what's going to be needed a great leader as Ruth said, but then also these people to come in. That's what happened when we transitioned from uh, uh, after two years of the Reagan administration. Uh, They threw out all of the political appointees, brought in uh, new ones. But before they brought in the new ones, Bill Ruckelshaus had people like me brought back in to fix the regions and fix headquarters and give uh, the current employees a say again, respect their rights, Uh, try to uh, uh, give them an opportunity to rebuild their morale and do all these things ethically. And even the people that were brought in, many of them uh, misusing the personnel rules, we gave them uh, all of their... Uh, opportunity and rights in fact some we kept uh, believe it or not we weren't vengeful but that's what's going to have to happen again there's a model for it it'll be the same way again I think also you got to fix systems like uh, the finance system the budget system and the contract system the basic boring stuff but you can get some good stories out of it from time to time
2: yeah you know actually um Here's, here's a hopeful end to this, or helpful end to this particular part of the discussion. Um, I, the Office of General Counsel, where I came from, actually has been doing some hiring. Um, the last time, about a year and a half ago, they, they had well over 200 applications for two slots. And I actually know one of the people who got one of the slots. This is somebody who came in knowing that this is going to be a rough time and that it was not going to be easy, but wanted to be there. My point is that the EPA continues to attract people who care desperately about this mission. Their lives are devoted to it. Um, They're sitting out there waiting to leave higher paid jobs to come in and work, because I ran hiring at OGC at one point, and that was our pattern. We got people who were from law firms, took half the wages, because they really cared about the issues. So it's, you know, they're still out there, they're waiting to do it, and you know, that's the hope that there'll be an opportunity for them.
1: Thank you, I think we're just about out of time because we have to end exactly on time
2: because of the, the governor's schedule. Thank you.